0: Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode.
1: So basic, um, the book of Judges, I think it's about numbers, the seventh book in your Bible. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you open it to the book of Judges? Um, and it's at a strategic point in Israelite history. So you'll remember that God's purposes of redemption begin with a man named Abraham. Abraham's an old man. God promises him a son. Oh, there we go. There we go. There's Abraham. Look. And I couldn't find a nice picture of Sarah as well, but it took, it took two to tango. Uh, God promised them that they were going to have a son and um, in their old age, and they did. They had Isaac, and then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob and Esau. or Jacob had 12 sons. That's the 12 guys there. Okay, so this, this thread of redemptive history. What the world is a very broken place, and God's going to rescue the thing. How is He going to do it? He's going to He's going to do it with a family line, and eventually, um, and eventually a very special person in that family line named Jesus. But it all starts with a guy named Abraham. So Abraham has descendants, twelve sons of Jacob, twelve sons of Israel, and then uh, we get, we hit the book of Exodus. And those 12 sons have all moved down to Egypt with the pyramid and they're living down there because there's a famine. And over the years, the pharaoh of Egypt enslaves them and they become basically forced labor. And they're making bricks and building pyramids and doing things like that. And they spend a couple of hundred years there in Egypt as slaves and they cry out for God to rescue them. And God raises up a deliverer named Moses. Moses, And uh, remember, how do they get out of Egypt? They walked. They didn't take a car. There were no cars. So very good, Greg. Anything else? How did they get out of the land of Egypt? They got baptized, all right? The New Testament says they got baptized in the Red Sea, and they passed through the Red Sea, and they left Egypt behind them. They left their slave master behind them. They left their old life behind them. They left their old identity behind them, and God took them out into the wilderness to a mountain, and he met with them on that mountain, and he said, I didn't just get you out of Egypt. I brought you to myself. I don't just get you out and send you off to go do your own thing. I brought you out of Egypt to be mine. And he meets with them at the at the mountain, and he makes covenant with them, and he says, "I will be your God; you will be my people." And from here on, you're my people, and you follow me. And he gave them some commandments and lots of instructions to follow. And they they were like, "Yes, whatever you you've just rescued us. Of course we'll follow you. We'll do whatever you want." But it was a bit of a tricky journey. I've um, got a picture of a desert up there. Sort of, it's more like an American desert, isn't it, with the old cactus? But the idea is that they spend some years in the wilderness um, getting Egypt out of them. Okay, They'd spent a few generations in Egypt and it took a 40-year cycle of a generation in, in 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 the wilderness to get Egypt out of them. So they got out of Egypt in a day, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. And so they wandered around the wilderness and they came to the land promised by God to them, the land flowing with milk and honey, and they stood over there. Moses stood on the edge of that mount, of the, of looking into the promised land. He knew he was going to die before he passed in and he passes the mantle on to Joshua, and he stands there and he gives the commission to them to follow the Lord their God. With they're going into this promised land, you know, you're going to be sitting and you're going to be sitting in deck chairs and watching the sunset and houses you didn't build. You're going to be sipping wine off the vineyards. Um, don't forget that it's all because of God's goodness to you guys. And he commissions them in, um, and they pass. Into the land of milk and honey under Joshua's leadership. And within a few hundred years, God had established a, a, a kingship, you know, a royal uh, lineage, a what do you call it, a monarchy. Okay, so here they're under a warrior leader called Joshua. And by the time we hit the middle of the book of Samuel, they've got a king called Saul. And the book of Judges fits right in the gap between milk and honey and the king. It's in a funny period where they've crossed into the promised land and they haven't got a king yet, but they're in the promised land that God promised to give them. They've been given a task there to drive out the nations that are in there. And there's lots of questions in Judges that you might have We'll sort of work our way through them. But the book of Judges falls. The X on the spot for Judges is between the milk and honey and the king. All right? So the big point of Judges is Israel's desperate need for a godly king. That's the big point. That's why Judges is in our Bibles. Um, it was written possibly by Samuel to make the big point before the king arrives. Look how badly we need a king. All right. So that's, that's the big point. And we're going to read a bit of a summary from Judges chapter two. So who's in the Reed family going to read that? Nicole's going to read it. Cool. So it's on the screen. And Nicole, oh, did I give you the I gave you the slides, eh? Do you want to read the headings as well? Because the headings just help us follow sort of what's going through there.
0: Starting well, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of a 110 years. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The U-turn. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baal's. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. singing the blues. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand the enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. The Intervention Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Rinse and repeat But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways.
1: So those are a a selection of verses uh, from Judges chapter 2, which is where the author of Judges, Samuel, um, decides to give a summary of what you're about to read for the rest of the book. You're going to read a series of Cycles. Okay, so the the point of Judges is there is no king yet, and but there is one coming, and Israel desperately needs a godly king. Is kind of the the point. Um, the point is made by this cycle that we've just heard from chapter two. So I think there's another slide, Luke. The next slide. This is the Judges cycle. Um, it starts out with good times, and then the people, because it's good times, they forget God. They're just on cruise control, forget God. And then um, God disciplines them with some bad times. Basic, uh, the, they forget God, not just we forgot him. It's they forget God and then they start being drawn to the gods of the nations around them. So that normally looks like idolatry specifically. When they forget God, they start worshipping the gods of the nations. So Baal, that's those funny words, Baal. Baal means Lord, the Lord of the Philistines, the Lord of the Midianites. They worship the Baals and the Ashtoreth, or Ashtaroth, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, that was mentioned, is the female compatriot to the deity called Baal. So they had a male female deity system going on. And of course, the worship of these male female deities involved all sorts of fertility practices and rites. And that was um, a lot of bad stuff went down with that. So that's what it looked like to forget God. They got involved in the, the nations. God promised that if they did that, they would have to live under the consequences of what it felt like to have that God over you. So when they gave their hearts to the God of the Philistines, God said, you want to you worship the God of the Philistines? I'll let you live under what, it's, what a society looks like with that God over you. You're going to live under Philistine rule. Okay, so they worship the God of the Philistines. They find themselves under Philistine rule and it, they squirm pretty quickly because it's very unpleasant. It's not good. Um, So they cry out for help, number four. They cry out for help. Oh, we've made a huge mistake. We've abandoned the God of our fathers. We've embraced this God. And it's not so cool living under this God. We want to live under the the, the awesome hand of the the God of our fathers. We've made a terrible mistake. So they cry out to God for help. God hears their voices because that's who God is. He always hears our voices when we cry out to Him. No matter where we are, He always hears our voices. And He hears. He's moved with compassion he comes in and he, and he delivers. And he does that by sending a judge. Okay, That's why it's called the book of Judges. The deliverance looks like uh, normally a man, but there is a very particular woman in there named Deborah. So there's one woman and I think 11 men, judges, who appear in the book of Judges. And this is God's means of deliverance. He sends a mighty person, anoints them with his spirit for the task of rescue, and then they go in and, and clean house. They they fight the enemies, they, they clean up Israel's worship, they smash down the idols, they get everyone squared up again. And then it's good times again. Okay, rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. Good times, they forget God. Bad times, cry out for help. God delivers. It's good times again. And within a generation or two of good times, we forget God. That cycle happens seven times in the book of Judges. And it's not Ah, uh, the Book of Judges. There's some. There's some judges that overlap with one another, and and it's sort of localized stuff. So it's not the judges are over all Israel. They're kind of local, lo- locality based. All right. So that's that's the Book of Judges. It starts out pretty good on the first page of Book of Judges. It goes a bit sideways halfway through Judges. You have got Gideon, and he's got he's a bit of a mixed bag. Then it's Samson, and he's like, oh, is he a hero or a villain? I don't know. And then by the end of the Book of Judges. This people of God who have moved into the promised land to be a light to the nations are worse than the nations. What happens in the last couple of books, uh, chapters of the book of Judges, I think are among the worst in the Bible. For You're not supposed to look at it and go, is this what God's people are supposed to be like? You look at it and you go, this is the, the pagan nations who do not know God don't live as badly as these guys. It's terrible stuff in there. So that's the cycle. It's a bad cycle that gets worse as it goes down. And the very last statement in the book of Judges is, is this. It says this in the last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's kind of underscoring the point. We need a godly king who can bring God's law and, and bring people into it and, and, and point them towards God. And, and so that's, that's the story. Um, we should read at least these, these two little judges at the start before we get into next week with Deborah. Um, the first one, and this is where if you're having babies, you need baby names. This is a good place. So there's Othniel. Uh, he's in chapter three. Othniel. Why? There's uh, there's Ehud. There's Eglon. (laughs) Don't go with Eglon. He's a bad guy. And you can tell from the name, eh? You can just say Eglon. He's going to be a naughty child. Don't call your name Eglon. (laughs) Um, but here's an example of the cycle, okay? Judges three, seven. It says this, here we are, uh, as good times in verse 6, uh, and in verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord, there's that turning, they forgot the Lord their God, they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, he sold them into the hand of Cushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishatham eight years, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathame, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathame, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. What happens next? What's our cycle? It's good times. What happens? Very next verse. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they had eight years of oppression. They cried out. Othniel comes as the deliverer, rescues them. The spirit of the Lord is upon him to do this. He brings deliverance. There's 40 years of peace. And then, hmm, they again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that's the cycle. The next story is one of the childhood favorites the story of a guy called Ehud. Um, the people of Israel are again, this guy Eglon is the king of Moab. He oppresses the people of Israel. They, they're bringing tribute to him. And this guy called Ehud. Is a obviously some official, and he's he's responsible to collect up all the taxes and take a big bucket of money to Eglon and say, Yeah, we you know, we think you're the awesome Eglon, king of you know, king of Moab. And um, so Ehud brings this to him, presents it to him, and then he says, Uh, Eglon, I have a message from God for you. <laughs> and uh, but it's a secret. And Eglon is a king, and uh, it says he's a very fat man, and he says. Uh, It says, Eglon dismisses everyone else in the room. Oh, this man, this Israelite guy who just bought me all the money has got a secret message from God. I'd like to hear this. Everyone out of the room, everyone out of the room. Ehud leans over. I've got a secret message from God. Whips a knife. He's smuggled a knife in. He he jabs the guy with the knife. He's so fat, the knife disappears inside. He lets it go. It's still there. (laughs) And he goes and sneaks. He locks the door and sneaks out the window. and, And all the officials are outside the room going, it's a very long meeting. And then they can start to smell because, okay, it's detailed, all right? It's in there. It's in the Bible. He His entrails come out. It's a bit smelly in there. And they smell smelling, oh, he's in the bathroom. This is, this is all a bit awkward. And they're shuffling their feet going, we can smell something. And then uh, after an hour, they're like, it's a very long bathroom break. Something's going wrong. They bust open the door and there's their king dead on the floor. And, uh, and Ehud goes out, assembles an army, and then fights them. So that's the kind of thing in the book of Judges. Are you interested? you want to read more? It's all there. Um, so that, that, and, and they have peace again for a number of years until they forget God and then bad times come. So that's the cycle. Okay, that's the cycle. Each week, um, we're going to be looking at aspects of Israel's failure that we'll touch on. And we'll, there'll be lessons to draw from this and lessons on faith from the Judges as well. Uh, it's easy to beat up on the judges. It's easy to read this stuff and go, Samson, you know, <laughs> Gideon, what were you thinking? How did you get it so wrong? But the, in the book of Hebrews, some of these people feature in the in the hall of fame of faith. So Samson and Gideon and Jephthah, um, with very messy lives, still accomplish great things for God and, and are champions of faith. Okay? Don't want to emulate everything about them, but where they exhibit strong faith and courage we do want to go, I want to be like that. You now that, that stirs my courage. I want to I wanna be a Samson in this way, but not that way, you know? So so we can't write them off. We've got to lean in and say, what are the good things going on here? But today, I just want to highlight um one one aspect. There's a the key verse in chapter two, verse ten, and it says this, and there arose all that generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. I want to talk about. I want to talk about the faith moving from generation to generation because that is the key failure of the Israelites in the Book of Judges. Okay, stand back. There's all these judges and battles and wars and stuff. What's what's really going on? A repeated cycle of people um, carrying their faith on cruise control from the generation before, not owning it themselves, and then falling over at the first sign of difficulty. So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit, faith on crews. And I spe- specifically want to speak to anyone who's like maybe 10 years old or up, mostly out there. Is this being recorded? 10-year-old <laughs> um, and up. And, and through those sort of teen, early teenage years, 14, 15, 16, up into 17, leave high school, uni or whatever it is, you start work, 18 around that age. That's the kind of the key bracket I want to talk to, um, especially if you've grown up in a home where mum and dad love love the Lord, and you're in that home, and you've come through that, you're in that, and His. He, I want to speak to you. I want to speak to you about faith on cruise control. So um, last night we travelled to Tauranga and we're still we're still excited about travelling on the expressway because it's new. Who anyone else? You get on the expressway like, yeah, 110, baby. And um we drove I drove um, Sarah's parents' car over with them in it, and we we can get on the expressway after a couple of minutes on our house and it's hundred and ten. And you don't so you leave our house within two minutes, you're doing hundred and ten, you hit cruise control, and you don't have to touch the brakes or the accelerator till you are like down by Carapiro somewhere. You know, it's it's just so good. You cruise past Hamilton, you cruise past Cambridge, you cruise past down by Carapiro. Um, and just about you can get all the way to Hinuera. You got to button off a little bit because it stops being 110, but you can get to Hinuera without touching the brakes or the accelerator in the car and cruise control takes care of it. Who's got cruise control in their car? It's, it's, it's a lifesaver, especially if you're on the expressway because speed can creep up. Um, there's no sharp corners. There's no, there's no hurdles. There's no people pulling onto the road in front of you. It's just, it's just smooth rolling all the way. But And that was us last, last night, shooting to Tauranga. And then we hit that Henuera that intersection where it's crazy. I think they're turning into a roundabout in a few years. Uh, and you can peel off there and you head out towards Tauranga. And that's the first time you have to hit the brakes. And as soon as we hit that spot, we hit a line of traffic last night. There was a, a maze chopper at the front doing about 60k, 50k. And it had about 30 cars behind it. And behind us, there was about 30 or 40 cars too by the time we finally got to pass them. but. There's people doing funny passing manoeuvres there and it's a bit of chaos. The road's a bit skinny so you couldn't just whip past them. There's vehicles pulling out in front. Um, not f- 10 minutes down the road, you hit a T-intersection. You can't be on cruise control through the T-intersection, all right? You go, you have to stop and look um, and and otherwise you'll be in the in the cactus. Then you hit the Kaimais and that's, that takes a little bit of attention. The Kaimais, it's like a nice smooth road too but there are some pretty sharp corners up there and if you just hammer it at 100, all the way, unless you're in some like rally car, you will fall off the road on the Kaimais. And then on the way down the other side towards Tauranga, you have to keep the speed down. Okay, it's, um, it's just a long downhill. And if you don't keep your eye on the brakes and just uh, watch your speed, you'll, be, um, you'll get a speeding ticket over there. Plus, there's roadworks, there's 50K zones, there's potholes, there's a bit of gravel here and there. There was a car on the side of the road. There was someone's tie down lying in the middle of the road. Um, there, was a, yeah, there was a possum that um, had, was a bit worse for wear in the middle of the road. All these things, all these things were there and you can't navigate any of that on cruise control. You have to be hands on the wheel, attentive, aware of what's going on, uh, um, a little bit immune to distractions. You have to, you have, to have, have your mind engaged. Um, you can do the expressway on cruise control. You can't do the rest of the trip on cruise control. And growing up in a Christian home with a dad and mum who love the Lord, mum and dad love Jesus, Growing up in a Christian home in, um, is a bit like learning to drive on the expressway. I know there's a few people in the room who are at the sort of got just got their licenses or just learning how to drive at the moment, and um, it feels like you're a good driver on the expressway because you're just 110 and going. But um, but you you can't you can't drive like you drive on the expressway once you get out into the rural roads. Um, at some point, at some point, and that's a bit like faith. Uh you're growing up in a home, you're growing up, it comes naturally to believe in Jesus, it comes naturally to believe what your parents are saying, it comes naturally to, to coast with the momentum in your home. Okay? That comes very naturally. You don't have to try. Mum and dad are carrying all the momentum for you, and you're just sitting in the passenger seat. But at some point, you kind of you take hold of the wheel because you're growing in maturity. You're 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 twelve. And you're starting to assert your independence at home, or maybe it happened before then. <laughs> you're 14, and you've got friends at school, and um, and they're starting to assert their independence, and they're showing you the way, and you're like, oh, maybe that's how I should act around home. All that stuff sort of happening. Um, and what what came naturally and carried you along when you were little no longer does. You need to have your hands on the wheel and start paying attention, um, because there's hazards. Okay, mum and dad are charged. Mum and dad are charged under God to make sure there's no possums on the road, no cars in front of you. They're charged under God to make sure that life feels a bit like an expressway for you. And they're, and they're doing the heavy lifting out the front of you while you're little, clearing the road, making sure that life's manageable for you. But you start hitting 13, 14, 15, 16, and mum and dad can't stop everything that's coming at you. And that's when cruise control no longer works for you. Okay? you you have to You have to have your hands on the wheel and go, is this faith mine or am I, am I just sort of sitting in the backseat of mum and dad's faith? Okay. Uh, friendships become challenges. When you're five, you have a little fight or something in the playground, but it's all good. But when you're 15, 16, friendships are tricky. Relationships are tricky and they can throw a spanner in your, in your life that you didn't expect. Um, objections to the faith that you've never had to encounter before. You might be at school and um, some teacher says, uh, oh, yeah. some people believe the Bible. <laughs> laugh it off. And and you're like, I've never heard anyone kind of question the Bible before. Or you've got friends who might question the Bible and you're like, I've never questioned it because everyone around me just just presupposes the truth in the Bible. I've never actually asked that question. And that can be like hitting a, hitting a possum or something on the road. Um, you can have pressures come on you at some point that put to the test what you actually believe about what Jesus says. Pressures that come on that test you. Um, you can have things that come up in your life that like tragedies that really make you question, is God good? Don't we? We, t- we talk about God's goodness in church. And then this happened, okay? And that's the Nell family right now. Their dad just passed away yesterday, and there's young people in that home who, who are in the midst of learning how to drive their faith. You know, dad's gone. It's a huge thing in their life, and they're like, how am I going to manage this time? Um, another thing that can really sort of be a, a shock to the system is that when you learn that mum and dad aren't perfect and aren't right all the time. You can grow up thinking that. um, And it's good to think that when you're little. It's good just to mum and dad know everything, man. Like, dad just is such an expert. And then you hit a point where it's like, dad was wrong about that thing. What else is he wrong about? You know, that is actually, that's a big moment when you realize mum and dad are fallible. And and what if they're wrong about faith? What if everything they've taught me is wrong? You start asking those what-if questions. That, that's, that's when you're, you can't be on cruise control. You can't be on cruise control with your faith. Push the button, not touching the steering wheel, touching the steering with your knees, whatever you do when you're driving. <laughs> no, no one does that. No one does that. Uh, touching the steering wheel, um, but, you, <laughs> but you're not touching the accelerator and you're not touching the brakes. And all you're worrying about is an indicator. I'm changing lanes now. That's all there is to think. You can't, you can't hit that stage of life trust in cruise control to work anymore. Your faith has to be made your own. Your faith, you have to, you have to step up into that place of going, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not flying under mum and dad's wings anymore with my faith. It's mine. I want to grab a hold of it and go, go forwards from here. So it's true that God has no grandchildren. Have you heard that saying? God has no grandchildren. Mum and dad love Jesus, but you have to love Jesus. God, God loves you. God loves all of us. But we come into the kingdom not as family units, we come in the in the kingdom by ones. We we have to trust Jesus ourselves. We have to we have to take come to a place where what mum and dad have taught us is owned by us. And we go, No, it's not mum and dad's faith, it's mine now. And I we have to come to that place. That's that's getting the getting the control back. Um while I say that, I do want to encourage mums and dads. Malachi two five Says that God gave you kids because God wants godly offspring. That's why God gave you kids. He wants you to raise them to know Him. Um, Deuteronomy 6, we're to teach our children. Um, we're going to teach our children when they wake up, when they sit down, when they sleep, when they're eating, to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, minds, soul, and strength. We're to talk about with them all the time so they grow up in a, a home saturated with allegiance to Jesus. Um, Acts 2 uh, 39, the promise. It's Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. What must we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The promise is for you and your children. All right? So God, if you're a Christian, your kids are very blessed because God's promises are for you and your children and godly parents lay a hold of that verse. This is for my kids and I'm going to believe and raise my kids to love Jesus. We're not going to wait. We're going to treat them as a saying. Like You don't treat them as demons and diapers until one day they believe in Jesus. Then we'll teach them to pray and trust Jesus but they have to get saved first. No, you're to, you're to lay hold of the promises of God, apply them to your kids and raise your kids in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord from infancy. Okay, we're, we're to do that, trusting that they'll take, they'll take it, you know, and, it, and it, happens, it happens normally and naturally around that, well, it gets tested in those teenage years um, and, and beyond. Um, in Ephesians 6, fathers, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of, you, of the Lord. Don't, don't exasperate them. Don't crush them. Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of it. Raise them to know Christ. So that's the parents' responsibility, but it doesn't abdicate young people and kids from at some point going, okay, I've been coasting under mum and dad's faith, and it's my, I wanna take a hold of it, I wanna grow. So, how, I just wanna throw a, just briefly, and I'm borrowing these from someone else, but a few thoughts on how we can know that we're not on cruise control. So, young people, this is for you. How do I know my faith isn't on mum and dad's cruise control? How do I know that I'm, I've am i turned the button off, I've taken the steering wheel, and I'm paying attention to my life with, with Christ in me helping walk that road? Here's, here's some things. So this is not bad to do. We're called in the Scriptures to make, uh, 2 Peter 1.10, make our election and calling sure. Okay, God wants us to look at our lives and go, am I sure? Am I sure? But this is a good thing to do. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see if you're truly in the faith. Okay, and this is, those verses aren't just to young people. They're to all of us. We're to make our calling and election sure. We're to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith and, um, and we're to lay hold of Christ. So first thing, first thing to ask yourself, how do I know if I'm not on cruise control? Is what do I make of Jesus? What do I make of Jesus? The center of the Christian faith is not coming to church on Sunday and singing songs or um, um, listening to the Lent Bible binge or um, saying a prayer at dinner time. The center of the Christian faith is what do you make of Jesus Christ? If you want to know if you're not on cruise control, when you think of Jesus, do you think of someone you're drawn to and you love or, does, or are you indifferent to him or worse, repelled by him? Okay, what you make of Jesus Christ is the center of it all. Finding Mum. Here we go. Okay, that's so. This is this is essential question. What do I make of Jesus Christ? Do you love Him? Are you indifferent towards Him? Are you hostile towards Jesus? When you hear the name of Jesus, is it, what's, is it in the um, Narnia series? Which one is it? I don't know. There's some. It just comes to me. They hear the name of the hear the name of Aslan, and some people rise and they go Aslan. Fills us, that name fills us with joy. And there's others who cower and think, I hate the name of Aslan, you know? And C.S. Lewis is winding into there, this idea. What do you make of Christ? Do do you hear of Jesus? Do you think of Jesus and your heart is warm towards him? Or do you recoil and think, I don't want, I don't want to hear that name. I don't want to know about that name. Okay. We have, we have to ask that question where this is examining our hearts to know what's in us. Christ. The Christian faith is not a faith of religious activities that surround a historical figure. That's faith on cruise control, okay? The Christian faith is a living affection and a trust in the risen Jesus. He is at the center. So the first and the most important question is, do you love Jesus Christ? Second question, uh, the Spirit. First uh, John tells us this, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. has given us of his Spirit. Um, the Christian life isn't detached from anything. It's like ideas in our head. The spirit life is a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. God, when we become a Christian, when we come to faith, he deposits his spirit in us, stamps us with his seal, and then the spirit is in us to do two things, to grow some things and to kill some things. Okay? Um, Galatians 5, the spirit is in us to grow fruit in our lives, to grow some things. Um, is a gardener, and he's in our lives to pull out weeds. In Romans eight thirteen, he kills things. Uh, if by the if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, you know, um, I can't remember how the rest of the verse goes, but that's the key. If by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. So, what is 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 there is there a very real activity going on in our hearts on a day to day basis where uh, I'm battling with this, and I know it's wrong, and I don't want to be doing that. That battle is awesome. That battle means God's doing stuff in us, all right? Don't, don't hear this and think, oh, if I'm perfect and I never sin, I'm in Christ. No, it's how, how do you feel about sin when it pops up in your life? Do you make peace with it and go, eh, doesn't really matter? Doesn't, doesn't really matter? Or do you go, it really matters? I don't want to be living this way. I don't want that thing to have a hold over me. I want to be free of that because I want to grow the fruit. I want that to be dead and I want that to be alive. I want Jesus to be first, not that thing. That's the work of the Spirit in our lives. That's how we know we're in Christ. There's, there's an ongoing activity in our lives of things being killed and things being grown. Third question, how do you know you're not on cruise control? Do you love other Christians? Do you love other Christians? 1 John 3.14 says this, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Now, that's an old word. Brothers means family. The brothers and sisters of faith. All right? So I'll ask that question again. Do you want to know if you're in the faith? We know we have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you feel about other Christians that you know love the Lord? Okay. So you're trying to go, do I love the Lord? His, John says there's a good test. Um, you don't know if you love the Lord, you're struggling with that question, but you know, but you know, Richard does. I'm going to pick on Richard because you're like listening well. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, Richard loves the Lord or you know, a friend in class, they really love the Lord. They, they're not faking it. They're not a goody two shoes. It's not just that they know the Bible answers in the, at the quiz time, but they actually like love the Lord and they love him when people are looking and they love him when no one's looking and you know, they love the Lord. Now, how do you feel about that person? What's, what are your feelings towards that person? Do you respect them? Do you admire them? Do you think I, I want to be like that? Do you do you want to emulate their faith or do you, they grate you and you get annoyed by them and you feel, you feel like their behavior is poking you and making you feel feel bad? Like well, how do you feel about the family of faith? Are you drawn towards them or are you repelled by them? John says that's a really good test to know if we're in the faith. We know real Christians Are we drawn to them or are we repelled by them? Another one, number four, 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3 says this, as newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. A fourth test or symptom of a living faith that's not on cruise control is a hunger for God, a hunger for his word, a hunger for things of God, right? Um, A hunger for spiritual input. I remember, I don't remember, I remember becoming a Christian a few times because, you know, you, when you're little and you hear the gospel, you're like, did, it, did that really take the first time? I need to pray that prayer again or something. Um, and, and I've come to understand that I don't need to know what time, what day the sun rose to know that the sun's up. Okay. I don't need to know what time this morning the sun came up over the horizon, but I know it's daytime. I don't know what day I became a Christian, but I know the sun's up in my life, right? And that's the important thing is the sun up in your life. And I can re- distinctly remember, when I was um, early teens, developing um, a hunger to hunger for the things of God, like it, it's like um, I didn't dial it up from anywhere. It wasn't. Uh, I don't think it was a pride thing. I don't think it, it came from um, someone saying you should do this. But I just, I just felt like I want to. I I just want more. I want to learn more about God. I want to know more about Christ and. And my grandfather's library became a treasure trove. I walked in there and he had Tozer on the wall. Who the heck is Tozer? I'm reading Tozer going, this guy's amazing. And I was hungry for that stuff. And as a as a new Christian, that that should be, um, that's, a, that's a feature of the Spirit's work in our life. You don't have to tell babies. Um, you don't have to teach babies to be hungry. you got to teach them how to talk. you got to teach them how to walk. Well, you know, they sort of learn that themselves as time goes by. Um, you got you, you. do have to teach a child lots of things, but you never have to teach a ba- you never have to give a baby hungry lessons. Here's how you be hungry. That that is a natural thing, and a good test um, from First Peter two is, is is there a hunger to like embrace the things of God and to, to grow in my awareness of God and understanding. These are that, not everyone has the academic drive, but there should be the hunger in some way manifested in your life. Of, I want more of God. I want to know more about him. I want, I'm drawn towards him. Because why? Because I'm a spiritual infant born into his family and I've got, I, I want the milk. I want it. I, I don't have to be taught to want it. I, I just want it. Number five, the gospel resonates. I haven't got the clock on me. Sarah, can you tell me the time? 57. Was that because worship went too long or something like that? Okay. Okay. Two, two more things briefly. Um, the gospel resonates. If, you know you're not on cruise control in your faith. If when you hear the gospel, it goes, it's there's a resonating in your heart. The amen to that. Amen. I'm a sinner. I've been forgiven by Christ. This thing makes sense. For the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians one, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Okay? You wonder why street evangelism, why people hear the gospel and they don't like embrace it, it's foolishness to them. They need, they need a re, the regeneration of the spirit. And when that happens, the word of the cross is, what does it say? Uh, for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Okay? For those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But for us who are being saved, when you hear the word of the cross, when you hear the message of Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, it clicks. And you go, I want in, I want in on that. All right? The gospel clicks. It makes sense. And lastly, um, we'll just call it, We'll call it a posture of obedience, a general posture in your life of wanting to obey your Lord. Okay? Uh, Jesus said to some people, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? Why do you call me Lord? You call me Lord, but you're not doing the things I say. You can't have those together. It's, it's yes, Lord, or it's you're not my Lord. Okay? 1 John two three. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Again, not talking about perfection not talking about the fact that we will need to come regularly and come to God and say, Lord, I, I confess that I did this thing here displeasing to you and I want to bring that before you and confess it. That's, uh, that's an ongoing reality in the Christian life. We're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about a posture. I want to live my life in obedience. I don't want to displease Jesus. I don't want to live my life um, walking. I know what Jesus says and I don't care. I don't want my life to be like that. I know what Jesus says and I struggle to follow everything he says, but I want to, I want to. So obedience, by this we know that we've come to know him. We keep his commandments. We love the things Jesus says to us. That, that's kind of, that's how we know we're not on cruise control. And He's more than that. And this might've raised more questions for you than answers, but it's important to ask yourself these questions, to search yourself, to see if you're in the faith, to ask yourself these questions and to walk. And it's especially important when you're in that, that teenage transition out from under your parents, sitting on cruise control, out into taking the, taking the wheel yourself, it's especially important to ask these kinds of questions and say, am I on cruise control? Because I can't navigate life on cruise control. I will crash. I will, hit, I will hit a tree. That's what the Israelites did. They cruise controlled while life was good. They, they hit the idolatry of the nations around them and they just went straight off the road over, and over the edge of a cliff. God wants faithfulness, generational faithfulness. And it means young people growing up and taking a hold of the faith while they're still young and going, it's not mum and dad's faith. I'm making it my own. I'm I'm trusting Jesus for myself. I'm walking with him. Would you stand with me as we pray?